Thank you so much, Deacon Wesley. And welcome everybody for uh, braving the rain and all the discomfort to come and join us. And every effort that you make is highly, highly appreciated by us, the leadership, as we continue our ministry of the gospel, both online and on-site. Nothing's going to stop God and His Word. Amen? That's very important. Okay, so um, the, the title of this passage um, message is God, Nightmares and Dreams, or God, Night, Dreams and Nightmares. We're going to cover a very huge portion, and so in terms of explaining it, I can only but summarize and get to the heart of it. And we have been, as we shared in announcements just then, really, really encouraged by God opening the door for the guest workers' work. And by God's grace, we have adopted the dom, and um, we managed to have an outing with them. And as we had the outing, it was so good that church members came along, our pastors came along, we played games. And one of the games we played is what we are very familiar with in our world, the game of charades. Right? And charades is you get people and they, we do actions and the audience there, you try to, to guess. It was not an easy game for them, uh, men from India and Bangladesh, to, to latch on to this from the background that they came from. But after a while, they, they got quite good with it. And so I think one of the men, his name was Guna, and he got up and he started to do this, right? I'm trying to remember. Started to do this, and started to do this, and started to do this, and do this. So what do you think was it? We asked them for a charade of their dream, their dream job when they, when they grew up. And so he showed us again and again this and this. Uh, took us a while to unpack it, his dream job from young. His dream job was to be a tour guide, driving a bus. And as you interact and socialize with this man, from the corner of your eye, from the bottom of your heart, we start to realize that everybody has dreams. Agree? And here they are working, slogging it out. The living conditions are not the best. They're separated from their loved ones, their their husbands, uh, their wives, their children, their parents, they live with strangers. And we can't imagine. And sometimes we think that people who do this work have no dreams. They never had dreams in their life. Who said? And that's why the people who organize these outings, our own people, slipped in this thing called charades. And so dreams. What about nightmares? 87-year-old Tendai Masaka was sleeping in a hut in central Zimbabwe. And a pack of wild hyenas entered. They pulled the 87-year-old man away and he was dragged about a thousand feet away. And by the time they found him, he was mauled to death. The lower half of his body was missing. You could say that's a nightmare scenario where our lives have been unthinkably, so unusually, right, mauled by animals to death. But in life, things turn to nightmare when we are mauled by fellow human beings. So in that, one, that wonderful, uh, heart-rending movie, Les Miserables, and that song, I Dream a Dream. And what did he dream? I dream a dream in times gone by, when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. And so she dreams, dreams of this wonderful love, and he slept a summer by my side. 
He filled my days with endless wonder. He took my childhood in his stride, but he was gone when autumn came. A love, a love that came and a love that went. I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream that I dream. Dreams can turn to nightmares. Isn't that true? Nobody falls in love only to fall out of love. Nobody gets married with the intention of getting divorced. Nobody grows up only to give up on life because we've been disappointed again and again and again. So I ask of you as we begin our time, where are you in this oscillation and pendulum between dreams and dreams turning into nightmares? When and how can we do anything about it? By the time we arrive at this portion in Genesis 34 to 41, the pivotal passages are all going to be about Joseph and his dreams that will bring God's purposes to fruition and bring God's purposes to bless us out of the nightmare of living without him. And here in this portion, we are transiting because Genesis 50 chapters has the story of the four patriarchs, the four first couples of God's story of redemption. The first couple of creation, Adam and Eve. But the first couples, the four first couples of God's story of redemption, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, and then now in this final portion, transition between Jacob and Joseph. And the summary to get us on the same page will be this. So an outline, if you're following this, taking notes in some way, mentally or writing it down so that we can learn together, is about Joseph's dream in Genesis 37. Then it's about our nightmares and then how God turns our nightmares to dreams. His dreams of a whole new human race. And so to get us on the same page to understand God's story of redemption, so kindly given to us, this could be helpful. And it goes back to, to understand Joseph, you have to understand Jacob, right? his father. And so Jacob's sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. For all who do not know biblical history, here's a good one. How on earth did these 12 tribes come about? It all went back to Jacob. It all goes back to Jacob. And so he has an unloved Leah, his wife. His heart is set on Rachel. With unloved Leah, he has six sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and a daughter, Dina. And then with the servant girl, Bilhah, he has two more, Dan and Naphtali. With the other servant girl, Zilpah, he has two more, Gad and Asher. And finally, with his beloved Rachel, the apple of his eye, he was besotted with her. He always loved her. Remember the story? He did seven plus seven, not forced labour, but willing labour to win her over from her very cunning and deceptive father, Laban. Remember that? And so comes finally Joseph and Benjamin. And so to understand, Joseph is the second youngest, but it turns out to be, very importantly, as we read the account, in the Jacob narratives, right, Genesis 34 is going to begin with a very sad story of what? A very sad story that one of Leah's children 
gets raped. Which tells you that the land that God calls his people to, the land of Canaan, can be a dangerous land socially. It's a dangerous land sexually because it's firstly a dangerous land spiritually. You want me to say that in the right sequence? It's firstly a dangerous land spiritually, religiously, because they worship idols. And then becomes a dangerous land socially and then becomes a dangerous land sexually. And Dina is just going about her day and then all of a sudden she becomes the victim of rape. The first recorded. In Genesis 35, God maintains his global blessings that he gave firstly to Abraham, now passed on and it's now re repeated to Jacob. But to his brother, the promises of God is that Esau, though he will not inherit the global blessings for the world, firstly given to Abraham and Sarah, he will nevertheless become a great nation. Then from 37 to the end of the book, 50 chapters, is all going to be about Joseph. And the two chapters we are zooming in are Joseph's dream and the brother's treachery and Judah's incest. And then we'll touch a little bit about Joseph seduced by Potiphar's wife and sending him to prison and then by chapter 41, him being set free. So I just want to check whether you're listening to this on-site or online. Are you still with me? It's a huge portion and hopefully we will understand more importantly than the quantity, the depth and the message of God's word. So Genesis 37 begins this way. Joseph had a dream. And when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. I just want to pause there, right? Have you ever had a dream? Then you tell your father or your mother, your husband or your wife, and then your husband or wife or your siblings hated you for telling that dream. This is a very unusual experience. He has a dream and they hated him. Please take note, the dream is not the trigger for their hatred. It's not the source of their hatred. His dream is the trigger for greater hatred. They already hated him. And what was the content of this dream? He said to them, listen to this dream that I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field. You got a picture of harvest time and the sheaves are there. When suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And so when you read this, right, he not just had one, he had two, and then he saw not just his brothers bowing down, he saw two more, which included probably his father and his mother. It couldn't be Rachel because Rachel had passed on. It could have been Leah. And so, what happens? That's the dream. But then it turns to a nightmare by verse 18. And what's recorded here? He's sent by his father to look for his brothers. And his brothers are where? Quite far away when I read the commentary, the distance. First, he had to travel to Shechem. And then from there, he couldn't find them there in Shechem. They said he had gone on to another place called Dotem. When you add it all up, it was about 80 kilometers. How far have you traveled on foot to look for someone who was missing? In any church and a church of our size, there will be some of us increasingly with aged parents who suffer from amnesia. And in suffering from amnesia or dementia, sometimes they just walk out. <laughs> the danger is when they walk out, they have no idea where they are walking to. 
And we prayed with church members where, please pray for my dad. You know, he, he just woke up. I don't know where he is. I don't know where. We reported to the police, but there is no, he's nowhere to be found. How far have you walked to look for someone? He walked a long distance. So, Joseph goes looking for his brothers because he goes looking for them obeying his father. He goes looking for them after their welfare. But notice the brothers' response. The moment they see him, right, they plotted to kill him. See the repetition and see the emphasis. Here comes that dreamer. If his dream was a better dream, we won't hate him so much. But his dream is about us serving him. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that the ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes out of his dreams. When you read the whole account, that was the original plan, right? Throw him into the pit and say that that animal killed him. Then Reuben, the elder brother, intervenes and says, don't do that. Don't do that, right? And throw him in the pit. And then his other brother comes and says, don't do that. We can sell him off. But notice, when you read the account, it doesn't mean that Reuben and Judah had good intentions. They still all wanted to get rid of him. Reuben wanted to get rid of him and then earn back his place as the firstborn in the father's household. Judah perhaps wanted to get rid of him, opportunity to get rid of him, and earn some money while getting rid of him. No one has good intentions here apart from Joseph. So what do we see? This is how families turn into nightmares. And how do families turn into nightmares? When you got multiple women, you got wives instead of singular wife, and you have the unloved Leah, and every child she bears, she prays and hopes that she would earn, finally earn, the love of a husband. And so she's unloved, unrequited, but she keeps trying. She's undying. She really just wants to be loved. Rachel, on the other hand, she's loved, but she has no children. And you see how real this is? And all she wants is a child. But in between, she gets so envious of Leah, so bitter in her heart, that she plots evil against her. Then there is the father, a father's favoritism. And this father's favoritism has been seen again and again, right? We saw it first in Isaac. And then there is Joseph's dream and his half-brothers, as we saw that family tree, how the 12 came about, the half-brothers perhaps left over, inherited envy, being the sons of the unloved wife, being the sons of the unloved mother, they would know that in growing up. And then by the time he had his dream, Joseph had his dream, it triggered them to hatred. Please notice the reality. It triggered them to murderous hatred. And so you see here, sibling rivalry is not just Coco, Titi, it's just, I hate Coco, I hate Titi to the point I want him, I wish he was dead. Be very careful, my friends, when the thought crosses your mind, the feeling grips your heart, and you have murderous envy and murderous ang hatred towards a loved one. 
That's how dreams become nightmares in our hearts and our home. So could we diagnose it as such that this has been there from where? That this has been there from the beginning? Right? And so a huge thing today, right? actually showing you all my notes, is uh, I eat, I shoot, I post. And whenever you read these things, right? you go somewhere, you eat, you take a photo, you post it, you write about it, and then the people who go to these places, they seem so happy, they seem so contented, they seem like they arrive in life as they go to places for holidays, they eat the good foods. And when you, do, when you read these things on social media, you read, you want, you eat also, but you want some more. This kind of DNA of have, but never have enough, actually began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Because God gave Adam and Eve everything, but the serpent came along and suggested to Eve that God withheld the best thing from her. And so she saw that the fruit of the tree was good, pleasing to the eye, good for food, and she took it. So I look, I like, I take. It's a description, the DNA of our God-forsaken life. Our self-determined life is a life of works. So it begins with bad eyes. Why bad eyes? Bad eyes because, bad eyes because, I don't see the things I already have. I only see what I don't have. I'm just going to pause there for a while. I no longer see the things that God has blessed me with in my HDB flat. I no longer see the things I have in my condominium. I no longer see the things I have in my, my house. I only see what is missing in my life. We call that bad eyes. God gave the whole world for Adam and Eve to rule, yet they thought the only thing missing, the most important missing, was the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And we call them idolatrous hearts. I have everything, but it's not enough. And God says, this is my lot, but I'm not happy with my lot. Why are, we, why are you withholding that tree? Surely you must be withholding it for a reason, O oh God. Why are you withholding something good from me? And then we go from bad eyes that keep looking at what you don't have instead of what you have. You go into idolatrous heart. You're going to go into deprivation mindset that God has withheld the best thing from you. And you and me will keep chasing what? You and me will keep chasing your tail. You know what's that? If you never own a dog, you don't know what chasing your tail is. You'll never catch it. You'll never catch it. You keep chasing the one fleeting thing or that one fleeting person or the one fleeting love. And where did you see it? You saw it in Leah. You saw it in Rachel. I had sons, but I don't have a husband's love. I have a husband's love, but no children. There's always something missing in life. Always. I belong to a great family, and my, and my father loves one more than me, and we just go chasing this thing. And so it becomes a nightmare family, the origins of the 12 tribes. The only glimpse of hope is how the chapter ends. And it ends with this. Meanwhile, 
the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And why is this the only glimpse of hope unknown to us? The hope to all those promised blessing in the promised land will be found outside the promised land temporarily. Then all of a sudden, the passage takes a turn in chapter 38. It detours from talking about Joseph, Joseph, and then all of a sudden detours to Judah. At that time, Judah loved his brothers. And so he left his brothers to do what? He left his brothers to go and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. And so the count turns and he married a Canaanite woman. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son, who was named, the eldest son was named Ur. Never name your son Ur. A strange name to have, right? And so she conceived again, gave birth to a son and named him Onan. There's a street in Singapore called Onan, in the East Coast. Did you know that? She gave birth to still another son and named him Shalah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. The story goes on. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. Doesn't explain how he was wicked, but he was wicked. And if you're wicked in God's sight, in the Old Testament has passages like that, bang! God takes his life. God put him to death. Then the first son died. Judah said to Onan, the second son, in the ancient world, right, which later became what we call the Leverite law, when a woman loses a husband, becomes a widow, right? the danger is the woman becomes disinherited, disinherited, destitute and abandoned, totally open to abuse. And so to keep her in inheritance, you do this. You get the second son to give her children. Sleep with your brother's wife. Fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep him providing offspring for his brother. And when you read the Bible, say, is this the Bible? The Bible shouldn't contain such stories. It shouldn't contain this word called semen. You couldn't get more real. God is real. Sin is real. Nightmares are real. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So what did God do? Second time, Judah's sons, the Lord put him to death. And so we make, as it were, a side point. Some people will make this the main point. That what was the sin of Onan? The sin of Onan on the surface seems to be the sin of masturbation. The sin of Onan was not the sin of masturbation. The sin of Onan was the sin of maliciousness. He wanted the pleasure, he wanted the sex, but he didn't want to bless his sister-in-law. What do you call such a person, such a man? Totally, absolutely selfish. Not a man, not a man made in God's image, an animal. When we want the pleasure without the responsibility, 
we are in trouble. And notice the Lord looks at this and he strikes him dead. Then we had to fast forward account, right? When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to share his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes because she was in mourning all that time and she identified herself, I'm a widow, I'm a widow, I'm a widow. Covered herself with a veil to disguise herself and then sat down at the entrance to Inaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. Lessons that are here. See how it ends. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. So much to unpack, but let me try to capture it for you. Judah married a Canaanite. Ur and Onan, the two elder sons, sinned against God. Then, according to that practice, he should have given the younger son, but he was too young. But Judah probably blames Tamar as bad omen. Whoever she marries, dies. Whoever she marries, dies. So he denies the third son from Tamar, sends her back to her own family. Then time has passed. And now it's time to celebrate. It's now bonus time, harvest time. And bonus harvest time is when we get together, we have lots of drinks and celebration, we get a little bit loose. And Judah becomes a little bit loose in a foreign land with foreign women. And so he sleeps with Tamar without realizing he, she is the daughter-in-law. And then she gives birth to Perez and Zerah. And you have to put dot, 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 dot. Then all of a sudden, the account shifts and goes back to Joseph. And as you read this story, say, hey, the writer a little bit confused, right? Which story is he telling? Is he telling about Joseph? Is he telling about Judah? Why did he make this detour into Judah's life? You have to hold it in suspense. Then all of a sudden in the next chapter, the story carries on with Joseph. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of God, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Fast forward. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern with anything except the food he ate. So Joseph was so trustworthy, so good in his job, that Potiphar left everything in his household so that Potiphar could only focus on one thing, the Singaporean thing, where's the best restaurant? Where to go next for my next meal? He will eat, he will shoot, and he will post. And we will follow Potiphar. But everything else in his household... He left to Joseph. Lessons? Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Has anybody described you as such? When was the last time all the men here, had anybody described you as well-built and handsome? And after a while, his masters, I mean, beyond your own self-description, every day you stand in front of a mirror, I'm handsome. 
But anybody told you you are? And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. You read the accounts. The Bible is God's word and everything here is real. And what do you see here in chapter 39? What you see here is a recipe, the perfect storm for sexual sin. And why is this a perfect storm for sexual sin? Because you get a highly successful and powerful man right, who holds the key to everything to his master's house. And this, he's an attractive man, most eligible bachelor, and he's all alone. Then you've got a very willing woman that so happened to be your boss's wife. And she is all alone. And you can now sing the song, right? Two less lonely people in the world. And it's all about between two adults, consenting adults. We call this, she didn't offer herself to him once. She offered herself to him again and again. And you've got to imagine, as you read the context, it wouldn't have been... It wouldn't have been cold and clinical. It would have been really attractive. Lots of flesh involved. Lots of skin involved in this temptation. We call it the drip, drip, drip of slow seduction. And with all sexual sin, it's always small compromises leading to big sin. But as in Christ, men... I speak to you as a fellow man. This is something we have to be really mindful of. And how on earth are you going to overcome this? The Bible portrays, plays this out, records for us how this is played out. So when you look at this, there has been a history of this, what I call the long arm of sin. The long arm of sin in the life of the four patriarchs. In Genesis 34, is the rape of Dina and the revenge of her brothers. Understandable but not acceptable because two wrongs don't make a right. Then Genesis 38 is Judah's incest with Tamar and here is the seduction of Joseph. And the repeated pattern is this. Beware, friends, from Genesis 3 onwards, you're going to see this, is the spread of sin from the first couple to their sons, Cain and Abel, and then it's going to spread all the way to humanity in the Tower of Babel. And it's not just the spread, but the depth of it. The tentacles of sin get deeper and deeper. Where? In families. Every family from Genesis 3 onwards becomes dysfunctional. There is no such thing in God's eyes as a functional family because we carry Adam's DNA in our veins. And so the heart sins become family sins and become sexual sins. And what family sins? Right? What family sins? Too many to name. 
favoritism, sibling rivalry, and sexual sins, rape of Dina, Judah's incest, and now the seduction of Joseph, which tells you that if you and me belittle the reality of sin, we are going to belittle our desperate need for God to save us, for God to redeem us. If you make light of that temptation, right? I don't think Joseph made light of it with Potiphar's wife. He knew how dangerous, and we didn't go into the account, right? She, the, the next thing, the next few verses, she just grabbed him and he ran for his life. There's nothing more furious than a woman who is spurned. You put it in any language and then she spins a tale that he came and he tried to take advantage of her. Surely Joseph didn't make light of sin in any shape and form. Where does that take us? As we reflect and draw the lessons together, reflect on Joseph in contrast to his 11 brothers. You find him secure though he has been betrayed versus the brother's insecurity. It was no fault of his that his father favoured him. It was no fault of his that he was given the multicoloured coat. It was no fault of his that he was given a dream. It was no fault of his. But his brother's hatred of him grew and multiplied to be murderous we won't be happy until we get rid of Joseph. Notice his loyalty. Firstly, his loyalty to his father who sent him out and he walked 50, 60, 70 kilometres looking for his brothers, looking that far for his brothers. And when his brothers saw him coming, they plotted to kill him. And then now Joseph shows his loyalty to his master, to Potiphar. He has trusted me with everything how can I take advantage of his wife? Versus Reuben's entitlement. Right? And then Joseph's fidelity versus Judah's incest. Did you notice the two chapters are put side by side? And they're put side by side to say, one brother does this, the other brother does this. Please take note that that is how God works His salvation purposes. And so what lessons could we learn about Joseph? Could Joseph be a lesson of resilience? Resilience is a very big word now in Singapore school system, you know? And so we now keep asking this generation of younger people around the world, younger generations of Singaporeans, are we the strawberry generation or are we the durian generation or are we the lawnmower generation? I just heard this yesterday, actually. So durian means prickly on the outside, right? But jelly on the inside, soft on the inside. Lawnmower means your parents paved the way for you. And actually, I was talking to a teacher. I said, yeah, this one very real, the lawnmower one. Last time, uh, uh, you, you teach in school, it's okay. But now, the parents are the ones who keep complaining and complaining and protecting their children. And so, is this a story of resilience? This is more than a story of morality or resilience. I deliberately miss out one verse, if you were paying attention, when we're describing how, reading how, 
Joseph escaped from Potiphar's wife. That drip, drip, drip seduction of him. And that verse is very important. No one is greater in this house than I. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing against my master and sin against God? This is where he's coming from. Where is he coming from? It is the fear of God that gets him on the right path. So when you read the description of when you read the description of Joseph in chapter 39, everything is about God being with him. When you read the descriptions of every single thing that goes wrong, God is not there in the brother's life or the father's life. When you read, there's God everywhere. So God was nowhere in his circumstances, as it were, when the brothers had murderous hatred against him. But God was there in his heart. And when God is there in your heart, as you exercise faith in him and his purposes for you, you and me don't have to fear what men might do to us ultimately. Evil men might do to us. So Joseph and his lifelong lesson of faith learned so painfully. Please take note that each patriarch Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph, and their wives, has to learn what? The full meaning of full submission to God as Lord. So I want to ask myself and ask you, you arrive at a very dangerous position in life when you think what or you feel what. You will arrive at a very dangerous position in your life when you think you no need to learn anymore. Lah. Let me say it more in a more posh way so that when people listen to this, they don't listen to Singlish. You, you're in the most dangerous position in life when you think you have outlearned everyone. There is no one you can learn from anymore. Beginning with the pastors and the preachers here in the RPC or anywhere. Because you think you've learned all the lessons. Be very careful, my friends, when you have stopped learning spiritually from God. And I want to issue a warning to many of us as Asians and Chinese. Right? Many of us stop learning uh, when we graduate from university. Because the only reason we study is to get that degree. What? But after the degree, why should I read or learn anymore? That's a very utilitarian way. And please don't carry that over into our spiritual lives. We will forever, in the words of Paul Tripp, you will forever be an undergraduate. So we just went to the licensing pledge. Licensing pledge means uh, pastors have to go through a system for them to get ordained, right? From preachers to pastors to reverends. Of course, it's a man-made system. And uh, it was um, Pastor Jason and Pastor Yak Chow. And Pastor Jason studied in SBC, right? And he studied there for six years, part-time. So <laughs> some of us hold records, but he's not the longest, you know? There are other people who studied slightly longer, right? And I've known friends who are in university, they never seem to graduate because they go from undergraduate to master's and then uh, PhDs, then postdoctorate. Then... So when you meet them, say, are you, are you still in university? Yeah, still in university. We will always never graduate 
from the school of faith and obedience in God. The moment you think you have learned things, so how many times did Abraham and Sarah have to learn that old age and barrenness is not a problem that will stop God's blessing of children? You want me to say that in slow motion again? How many times do they have to learn that old age and a barren womb is not a problem to pregnancy? As we listen to it as normal human beings, of course, old age and a barren womb is a sure no for pregnancy. And when are we going to learn that this is a God of the impossible? The God who will always bring life out of death. The God who will always bring life out of a barren womb. So never get used to not learning from God. Right? As you come to a close, what do we learn from Judah, Tamar and us? Judah, Tamar and us? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Hey, now, all sounds familiar to us, right? Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of... <laughs> Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. I do not know whether you've gone to look at your family tree. I haven't. But if you find in your family tree, right, cases of adultery and cases of incest, you and me would not want to include it in your family tree because it's a bit embarrassing. This so happens to be the genealogy and family tree of our Saviour and our Lord, Jesus Christ. And the family tree of our Saviour and Lord, Jesus Christ, includes a Judah and a Tamar and includes incest. And what does that tell us about God and His salvation plan? that God can bring order out of chaos. He can turn our mess into salvation. Again and again, that is the gospel story. And so Joseph, Jesus and us, God's personal preservation of him against his siblings is part of God's greater preservation of us against Satan and sin. What does that mean? You may think that all God is doing now is stopping you from the sins of your brother who hated you so much. All God is doing now is stopping you from the seduction of, of your boss's wife. But when we ask God for wisdom and strength to overcome those things, that I will not become bitter against my brothers, that I will be able to overcome this temptation, you know it's part of God's salvation plan that in and through you, salvation may come to others. What do you think we might do, we do as pastors through the week? And so it could be things along these lines, that the person is struggling with, struggling with keeping their way pure. And what can I do? What can you do? And he says, try, keep me accountable. And I say, okay, let's try. I'm just going to read a message to keep people accountable, right? And to keep people accountable, right? Tempted on, to, to watch something on social media, on the net. Tempted to watch something on Netflix. 
and then by God's wisdom and strengthening, you delete it. You know it takes how much conviction to delete it? So I send it. I praise God that He has not just convicted you of your vulnerability, but has empowered you to delete that show, which is not helpful. It is sugar-coated poison, I say to him. Something that Satan is best at, sugar-coated poison. Because Satan tempts us with hell, packaged as heaven. All sin, especially sexual sin, is an invitation to hell, but it tastes, it looks, and it tastes like heaven. For a young man or man of any age, just ask Judah, a man of any age to be able to overcome this. So I say to him, this has helped me walk the narrow path. Jesus wants us to be merciless with sin. If we are serious about Jesus, we will be serious about sin. If we belittle sin, we will belittle our Saviour. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole body to be thrown into hell. What messages have you sent to each other during the week? Another one of our church members discovered that his, one of his parents had come down with terminal illness. And they are very painful deaths here. Rebecca, Rachel, Rachel in childbirth, Rebecca, Isaac. Very sad departures where you leave and your parents are gone and you just don't know how to rebuild your life. So a brother heard this news and he had to get home to be with his family in the last stages of his mother's life. And what could I send him? And he's totally distraught that this could be happening to him. Let me find the message. So I said to him, I can totally understand why you are questioning, why you are questioning, why you are asking why, and I'll cry for meaning and deliverance. Jesus is the epitome of this. When he hung on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The prospect of a parent suffering from last stage cancer and losing them while you are away from home is something that will break any heart and will linger on your memory for the rest of your days. So I text him and said, for me, I'm the youngest of 12, I've lost four of my eldest siblings, two to cancer, one to stroke, and one to autoimmune illness. Eight of us remain. I've also lost both my parents. And I say to him, we never get used to disease and death. With each of my siblings who fell ill and finally died, I wrestled with God and felt the pangs of death and almost couldn't complete the funerals that I had to complete, for, I had to conduct for them. And he says to me, Thank you, Pastor Chris. I needed to hear this. And I will read the Psalms you tell me to read. Beginning with Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So when, this, when you read these stories of the patriarchs, you meet a God who knows how to turn our nightmares of sin into beautiful salvation stories. 
You must believe that. No matter what is happening in your life, no matter what the seductions of your heart, no matter what the cries in your family, no matter what the dysfunction, because it points us to a God who gave us all by giving, his, giving us His Son. Let's go to God in prayer. All that you say to us in your word is true. And so we confess we have made a mess of our lives because of our independence and autonomy against you. But we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are a God of promise, a God of blessing, a God of steadfast purpose, a God of steadfast love. And as we read and see how you have worked through the lives of these patriarchs, we don't see them, we see ourselves in them. How we are in the same shoes of experiencing this brokenness in our hearts, in our families, which are all dysfunctional. And out of our mess, you bring the beauty of salvation. Thank you for fulfilling this, Heavenly Father, in and through the suffering, the love, the sacrifice, the atonement of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To Him we turn and find salvation, that He will turn our nightmares into the dream of a life, a life without sin, a life forgiven, a life totally beautiful, because we live it under You and for You. In His name we pray. Amen.